Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. From Backpage, this is Between the Lines, a podcast that tells the stories behind great sports writing. My name is Martin Gregg, and in this episode, I'll be chatting to Tim Parks about his 2002 book, A Season with Verona. So I've wanted to speak to Tim for a long time about this book. It's always intrigued me. Tim, as a writer, has always fascinated me. If you don't know Tim's work, he's actually a celebrated writer of fiction. He's written 18 novels one of which was actually shortlisted for the Booker Prize, no less. And I love that when writers who are not sports writers by day decide to turn their hand to the genre. In that sense, it's a very American tradition, you know, whereby the best writers often cover the big sports stories. Every time we ask people what their favourite sports book is, Tim's book always comes up. It's a bit like The Miracle of Castel de Sangro by Joe McGuinness. And I think the two books are quite similar in the sense that not a lot is known about how the books actually came together which was why we decided to make our little documentary on Castel de Sangro, which is available on this feed, probably about two or three episodes down. But we really wanted to get in touch with Tim to hear how he managed to pull together this classic of, of football literature. If you don't know the story, Tim went to every Verona match of the 2001 season, home and away, and it just turned out to be one of the most amazing drama-filled seasons in their history. I reread it again for this conversation and it's really powerful, a really visceral account of the fan experience. For much of the campaign, Tim is actually embedded with the Verona fans who occupy the Curva Sud, who are a group who have this reputation, real fearsome reputation throughout Italy for, for violence and, and racist chanting. This book is not for the faint-hearted, but Tim, I think, takes on these difficult subjects in a really interesting way. And he explains more about that in the chat you're about to listen to. Tim actually stepped back from the publicity circuit after the publication of the book in 2002 because he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a football pundit. So this is actually a rare interview with Tim on the book. But before we hear from the man himself, here's one of our listeners, Duncan Mackay, on how he fell in love with a season with Verona. When your formative years of watching football as Dreek Scottish Premier Division games under dour managers, it was hard not to be entranced by the glitz and the glamour of Italian football. Like many others, Football Italia opened a window on the possibility of what football could be. That infatuation with Italy lingered with me a long time and was enhanced further by reading Tim Parks' A Season with Verona, one of the few football books that I've read again and again and again. It manages to offer insight not just into Italian football, but life in Italy too, warts and all. I think the reason I keep returning to the book is because Parks beautifully articulates the universal experience of being a football fan, the irrational, devoted and knowing beauty of it. But he does so in a style that elevates our role as football fans. It makes our passion worthy of study, contemplation and validation.
Tim, I want to start by talking, I guess, about the premise of the book. You decided to attend every home and away game during the 2000-2001 season. 34 games, 34 chapters in the book. I think you were a regular at home games before that. So I kind of wanted to start by asking you about the away fan experience. Like, why was that so important to bringing this book to life, if you like? Let me say that. I think I'd had a season ticket about eight years before I wrote the book. So I was kind of familiar with the Curva Sud. But, you know, I had got a ticket, partly because I loved the game, but also it was great to take my son there. And so you only meet the people around you in the stadium, right? Then, you know, I thought, well, it's such an interesting way to look at different parts of Italy and think about, you know, the different microcultures in Italy and the different, different ways they experience stuff. So, you know, the idea of the away games, I suddenly thought, yeah, I can go all over Italy with a kind of purpose and a narrative and I can enjoy all that football uh, and so on. But I really had no idea how intense the away experiences were. Basically, I was traveling with a bunch of guys who were not the, not the hardest of the hard, as it were, who were rather younger. I was traveling with the ex-hardest of the hard, you know. The, the kind of hard guys who get a bit older and, and start to take it a bit easier, but they, they still get into a few fights and things. And uh, it, it was just the madness of the arrangements, like the, the, the ticket arrangements are difficult enough, like they make it as difficult as possible for you to get away tickets. And then, like in those days, you couldn't get tickets on the net or anything. You always had to go to some particular place at some particular time to buy them. Then you always had to depart at crazy hours because the the police always had to escort us. And uh, we always had to be at the stadium at least two hours before and stuff like that. And then the police would keep you waiting outside, maybe in like 35 degree heat or something uh, not in the shade while you etc and and then you're traveling with this bunch of guys who do it you know partly to escape their families i think to a large extent partly just to go out and have a great time for the weekend so if, rather than just going to the game with my son you know it, it was like this totally intense experience of verona people you know local verona people a city i had lived in at the time for for 18 years or something so I was kind of an outsider but not an outsider and it and it was and I was older than the others but but they kind of were very accepting so it was it was just a lot of fun but also like mentally a lot of work you know yeah you had to be on your toes all the time yeah, that, that's one of the things that comes through is the intensity of the experience. There's a character you know, later on in the book called Pietro. And he actually says that he, he'd stop going to away games. Uh, and I've got the quote down here. He says, if you do the away games, it takes you over. You lose a sense of proportion. It fills your whole life. It's too strong. Which I thought was a, a fantastic encapsulation of the intensity of the experience. But... But really, from, from from the first chapter, this incredible chapter on this away trip to Barry, where you're on this incredibly long trip with these guys who just come across as absolute lunatics. I mean, all of them seem 
to be either coked up or drunk. There's there's all sorts of nonsense going on. You eventually get stopped at a service station. I think there's a big fight. Uh, the police impound the bus until you pay damages to a truck driver. I mean, all the time I'm thinking of it from your perspective and thinking, how? This is an intimidating atmosphere. I mean, do you remember that trip? What do you remember about that trip? That must have been like, what have I got myself into here? It was hilarious, you know, the whole trip was completely <laughs> mad. It was a midnight departure for a game at three o'clock the following afternoon. It was the first game of the season, you know, we hadn't had a, a home game. I think the thing is, if you do all the away games and all the home games, the intensity is partly that there's just never a break, you know? There's just never a moment when you start kind of seeing life reasonably. Anyway, with this trip, not every... I mean, there there were only like three or four guys who were really coked up. A, A couple of guys were sort of mildly drunk... People like to behave as if they were madder than they are. And, and you know, they just wanted to stop at every single service station and have a drink. You know, that was me thinking, oh, God, what happens if I need a pee? And, you know, they don't want to stop. They were stopping everywhere, you know. And then all of a sudden at one of the stations, I don't know, two of the guys had, had pushed over some promotional stuff in the station and then and then and then had an argument and, and exchanged a couple of blows with a truck driver. And all of a sudden, we're dashing back to the bus, and everybody's in the bus, and the driver's trying to get the, the bus out of the service station, and we're being chased by this truck. I mean, it was really ridiculous. Big lorry is trying to block our path, and then this big lorry's following us down, down the uh, motorway, you know, and then the police and stuff. And it was really interesting because... They recognised that I was an older guy and that probably I would be able to speak to the police in a more reasoning way. So the the ex Capocurva, who was the head of this group, the kind of head of, the, of, of this group, just comes up to me and says, look, I don't know who you are, but do you think you could talk to the police w- with me maybe and come across as like Mr. Reasonable and maybe we can sort this out, you know? So all of a sudden, like from being nobody, I was in this situation where I was negotiating on behalf of these guys. I I didn't really feel... It was funny, like when you describe it, yeah, I should have felt intimidated, but actually I started feeling really into it, you know. And when some of the guys said... I mean, I think we all had to pay something like... It wasn't much. It was like 15,000 lira, which at the time was about seven quid, you know, because for, for the stuff we'd broken... Or, or that they, that this couple of coked up guys have broken. And there are people saying, no, we're not going to pay. And I said, look, guys, you know, we, we got on this, on this bus. We've been all night on this bus. Are, are we going to miss the game for, 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 for this money? Come on, get the money out. Uh, so I got pretty, I got pretty stroppy with some of the guys and, and it was fine in the end. We, we had a great trip and, and, and that was really how I got to know that that group very well I mean I thought it was a, an interesting insight into you know how you, how you handle these kind of group dynamics and there was a couple of interesting moments there was there was one moment where you know quite an aggressive young fan confronts you and he says you know who the fuck are you uh, and you actually you pull off his cap and you throw it to someone else on the bus uh, and it kind of breaks the tension um, and I thought that, that that was that was really interesting that you you had the, the the presence of mind to do that and well you know yeah you're, you're making me come across as as this sort of very kind of uh, you know courageous smart guy but actually uh you know, I just didn't think of anything. There's a kind of mood that falls upon you when you 
when you meet these guys, there's a sort of rhythm to the way they speak. I mean, these guys are, you know, in, in Italy, blaspheming is, is very big. Like, you know, they use all kinds of complicated blasphemies. I won't go into them. Uh, they're in the book and they just repeat them rhythmically and they get into this sort of mood and uh, there's a kind of mixture of comedy and violence going on all the time and I think I just fell into it I, you know I'm not a particularly courageous guy in uh, you know if I, if I if somebody pulls a knife on me on the street I, I hope I have the presence of mind just to run for it you know but yeah all kinds of stuff happened and in fact later when uh, somebody from one of the younger group, which was really a pretty aggressive group, comes up and says, you know, we've heard you're writing some some stuff about uh, about us, you know, you better keep your mouth shut and blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I just told him to F off, you know. Uh, because I realised that that's the only language they really understand in, in, in that particular group, you know. <laughs> Uh, like if, if you come across as somebody who's scared of them, they just love it, you know. I, I think it's interesting, but I think there is a necessity in these situations to maybe establish your your identity in some way, and it's quite interesting through these interactions. You build up this persona, and by the end of the trip, you've actually got a nickname. I think the is it is it Parojo, the the the, the parish priest. I think becomes your everybody in Italy. In uh, at dialect, like when people are together in a situation where they're speaking the local dialect, absolutely everybody has a as a nickname, a soprannome, as as they're called. And uh, anybody in a group, like when uh, has to have a nickname, and, and you might have a special nickname in that group, as it were. You know, the fans were a very mixed bunch. Like these were not like this was a mix of people. Some of the people are working in factories. Some of the people are working are lawyers. Some of the people, you know, it's it's really a mix. And and but the the dialect thing. They're coming from the same place and speaking this this very. It's not just an accent, you know. It's like a whole different language almost. Uh, makes them very united. And one of the guys just just comes up to me, and because I'd had this sort of role in in the trip, you know, one of the guys comes up to me and says, "Okay, we're going to call you Paroko, which means priest," because I was bald on top, you know. And uh, the funny thing was that my dad was a clergyman, you know, so it was kind of hilarious and. And when I told my friends, you know, everybody's just laughing their laughing their heads off. I didn't tell them right away I was I was writing a book. I didn't feel I was obliged to that. Partly because I had no desire to, as it were, expose them. I mean, I I, I find all that kind of wearisome. You know, books like Among the Thugs. You know, as as if Bill Buford had even remotely understood the people he was dealing with. I, I just wanted to to be there and uh, experience it and and talk about it. and actually I I had a huge amount of fun. Like when we came back from that trip, which was a, one of the dullest drawn games of your life, you know. But at least we did score just a few minutes from the end. And uh, we're coming back and we're going through one of those endless tunnels that coming up the Adriatic. When this tunnel is blocked because there's a fire, there's a bus on. There's, it's actually I think it was a bus or a truck was on fire in the tunnel and so we had to get we all had to get out of the bus and the police are coming along and the boys were all out of the bus there's fire fire you know they were loving it running around screaming insulting the police and everything it was just completely crazy it was 
It was so mad. And then being very ironic to the police and very polite. And then the police realized it's a joke and they were having fun too. But, um, but it was quite a dramatic situation. I, I just thought it was all so exciting compared with my normal life. <laughs> it's interesting you talk about almost the, the different roles being played within that setup there, just when you were describing the fire and stuff like that. And that is one of the themes in the book, isn't it? About everyone has to, it's almost like orchestrated a lot of these um, interactions between fans and, and, and non-fans and police and they all seem to have this kind of dance, sometimes it can be quite a violent dance but you, is, is that is that fair to say that there's there's, there's some kind of s- strange synergy between how these, these factions interact? I think there's a big element of theatre in the whole thing you know, I like I was with these guys, I, I must have travelled with these guys at uh, what, or, or most of the away games. I, did, I think I did two away games travelling with the team and then a couple of other games, away games travelling with uh, with smaller groups of fans. So I think, I think I did probably 12 or 13 away games, buses with these guys and sometimes trains. And a lot, they have this whole kind of theatre of, you know, sort of slightly violent songs, gestures and so on and so forth. But actually, and almost nothing actually really physically happens most of the time, you know? Uh, the kind of stuff that kicks off and that, that's very violent that one hears about uh, often goes, goes on uh, outside the stadium and away from these groups. So a lot of it was just sort of enjoying a sort of posture, like being a weekend Taliban, you know. There was a lot of pretense in it. And uh, the police, I must say, were, were, were pretty theatrical and aggressive too. You know, I, I found the, the police very difficult to deal with. So, yeah, I, I mean, just from, what's really interesting is that it really is different from the UK. You know, you, re- you read about an incident like this and you imagine how it would be if it happened, you know, in Glasgow or in, in London or something. But actually, it all feels totally different the way it happens, you know. Uh, and that's that's the challenge, really, when you're writing about it, is how can you, like, help help people to feel that, that actually the emotions going around are not the emotions that maybe you would expect. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I think one of the kind of key themes in the book for me seems to be this, you know, examining, how would you put it, maybe complex realities behind extreme behaviour. Obviously, you become kind of more and more embedded with the Brigati, the Verona Ultras, and they have this reputation for the, the racist chanting and vandalism and all the rest of it. But it was interesting. It actually reminded me of of another book, um, which which we featured on on this podcast as well by a, a guy called Michael Calvin, um, and it's about Millwall, and that is a club who whose fans have a particular reputation as well. But it's a really interesting book because Mike kind of tells the story from the inside, and he puts a microscope on individuals and group dynamics, and looks at the kind of sometimes complex motivations behind you know certain behavioural patterns. And it's really interesting, which is never to condone or excuse or, or do anything other than just kind of invite you to a deeper understanding of what is actually going on. It, would, does that kind of resonate for you? Was that something that you were trying to do and trying to draw out in your interactions with the, the Brigati? Yeah, well, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't initially going with, with any particular 
a genuine mind. But I mean, it was obviously something that I started observing. I do relate very much to the whole Millwall thing, although although I do think that you know, from what I know about Millwall, that that, that in the past they there have been an extremely violent bunch of guys as well, which which probably is is not quite so true of the of the Verona group. As for the racist chanting, I mean, you know, obviously disgraceful and everything. But, but yeah, all kinds of, of, of little... So, for example, imagine you've got a group of fans and we're going to a big game and, you know, the head of the, the, head of the curva says, look, guys, the team really need a point from this game, otherwise we're going down. And we know that the referees tend to respond to racist chanting by helping the other side. This is a vision that the fans have, and I must say, I felt it was, it was spot on in some games. So it's just like, if any of you guys come out with any racist stuff, you know, you're going to get uh, kicked out of the group. Well, then there's always somebody there who wants to challenge them, you know? There's always somebody there who's thinking, this guy's getting a bit old, he's not, he's not really tough enough to be head of the group, so what I'm going to do today is the racist chanting, right? Uh, and you know that the press are waiting for it anyway. I mean, the press are there saying, you know, are the boys going to do their racist chants today? And, and so on. And, and so, like, anybody who wants to get any publicity is going to do a racist chant. I mean, that, that uh, it's disgraceful. Whether, you know, what it has to do with this guy's personal life and racism, you don't know at all. But it's got a lot to do with the dynamics inside the fans, you know. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. One of the, the, the interesting aspects of the book is the, the access you get, the actual, I guess, the official access to the, the players and the club officials. And I think it enhances the book because I think it allows you to reflect on what's it like to be an insider at the club and see things from the inside looking out. And then obviously this is contrasted with the, the fan experience, which is the, the, you know, the major part of the book and how you're seeing things from, from the, the, the stands or the terraces. But it's interesting that you kind of limit your access, you, you limit your own access, I think, to, 
to the club. And at one point, one of the, the, the club officials mentions Joe McGuinness's book, The Miracle of Castel de Sangro, and he, and he said, you know, this guy lived free uh, with them, all expenses paid for the whole season. Then he filled his book with details about their private lives. And and you, you respond by saying, look, I just want to go to one away game. And then, and then when you go to that away game, after it, when you're back with the Brigatti, it's almost like you've cleansed yourself of the experience. You're got, you know, you're glad to be back among the, you know, the the fans and on uh, on the bus and, and all the rest of it. So, um, we'll talk a little bit about that, about the, you know, getting that that other side, the look from the other side, and seeing seeing it from uh, the club's point of view. Did, did you feel that was important to the telling of the story? Well, let me say, I, uh, I said I didn't have an agenda with this book, but, but as far as I had an idea of what I wanted to do, I wanted to explore, like, what is this mental space that is football in modern life? Like, you know, why does a guy like me uh, writes books, te- teaches or taught at the university, why am I spending so much of my time thinking about football, you know? Uh, I, I mean, obviously, I used to play a lot as a young as a younger guy, but now I don't don't play. So, like, what's going on? Why are we Why are we doing this? And so that, like, the fan experience was the core experience for me. But in order for this fan experience to happen, there has to be this huge investment of money. There has to be this bunch of guys who are professionals who are doing this stuff, right? Um, and so, you know, I wanted to explore that as well. But as soon as I got into that and, as you know, I spent some time with the players, you know, I in- interviewed or, or just had breakfast with Martin Lawson quite a few times. I would speak to, I spoke to Apollonia, you know, a two-hour interview with Apollonia, which was really interesting, uh, and other people as well. And the more I looked at that, the more it... The more it really has nothing to do with the fan experience, which is one of the really curious things it seems to me about football, is that a lot of the guys playing it really have no idea what's going on on the other side in people's heads, uh, and vice versa, of course. The 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 Veronese uh, fans have a lovely chant that says, you know, the players they come and go. We don't care about them, you know. The the club is ours, <laughs> and so on and so forth. And they sing that right to the players. You know, you're a bunch of mercenaries. <laughs> uh, so, uh, like, what matters to them is the pos- possession of the phenomena, which is the club, right? And uh, and and so on. So, I w- I I was interested in the players and stuff up to a point, but really mainly interested in you know how this was a team on the edge of relegation, right? Uh, which was a, a big money question for the owner of the club who was not a super rich man, but a man who had put together money from other people's investments and stuff. Uh, so there, w- there was a lot at stake for the various stakeholders in this thing. And uh, they were super tense, like traveling with them. They were, they were not enjoying themselves. They, they were not happy, happy people. Like they ate more or less in silence. It, it was when, when we, when we ate at the hotel and stuff. Uh, it was pretty, it was pretty depressing. I was glad to get back to the boys who, even when we lost the game, and I think we, we had 17, 17 away games that season. We lost 14 and drew two and won one. And the one that we won was fixed. 
So, you know, <laughs> but, but they always had a great time. You know, they always had a great time. Well, and I take my hat off to them, you know. I think one of the things that, that access brings you is, is, I guess, maybe editorial or maybe we call it ethical dilemmas. And, and you know, that was one of the, the themes that, I guess, of the miracle of Castel de Sangro and how Joe McGuinness handled that. But it's interesting, there's, there's a discussion um, one night before, I think it's an away game at Lecce, and the club officials are having this very kind of body conversation about about sex you you write it up really skillfully because y- you convey the tone but you don't mention any names and then i think the key part of it is like you make the point that these guys are doing this to release this tension you know these are extremely uptight individuals who are going through a big emotional experience and and this is really the only way they can handle it is by talking in this way so it was really interesting the way you walked that line between not exposing them but also conveying the reason why they are talking like that. I remember that was the big issue as right because because these guys you have to be careful when writers are around you know I, I could have uh, they said some pre- pretty politically incorrect stuff well you know they were among among men before a game and stuff but my feeling when I did the book was you know I don't I don't want this book to make life difficult for anybody that that's not you know, I'm not here to expose that some some or another person is evil. I'm here to talk about how all this whole ethos works. So what I did there, I remember, was I set up a conversation where I didn't make it clear exactly who was at the table or who had said what. And uh, so I let the conversation flow out there as stuff that had been said around around this, this event. Uh, and, and I missed out some of the heavier stuff as well. Uh, you know, maybe maybe I didn't do my duty there. I don't know. Certainly with the fans, I put in a, a lot of heavy stuff. But again, all the names were changed uh, and where necessary physical descriptions as well. Because, you know, the last thing you want is to be, you know, frankly, the shit who puts himself in a group and then pisses on everybody, you know, not, not, to, not to put too fine a point on it. I think a certain amount of loyalty was required. Funnily enough, though, I didn't see any behaviour that that I would that I would call criminal. I saw I saw some behaviour that I would call criminal on the part of the police, but but that's a different issue. It's interesting when whenever fans get the occasional glimpse behind the scenes or into the inner sanctum, very often a lot of their their kind of boldness disappears. <laughs> and they become uh, a bit starry-eyed when they're confronted with players or, or club management, etc. But I, I like the way that that when you had this access, you know, the, the journalistic, the writer part of you came alive again. And there's some interactions with uh, Pastorello, who is the I think he was the chairman, and he had received quite a lot of criticism for basically selling off all the best players the previous season. I think Verona had finished ninth the, the, the previous season um, and and suddenly there was this fire sale of all these players. Uh, and and you, you kind of get stuck into them. I mean, you, you ask them a couple of quite hard questions like, why did you sell all the best players at the end of the year? And then you also challenge him on this conflict of interest with his sons being the agents for some of the players. So I, I really like that. And But that was obviously something that you, you, you kind of went for. You thought, well, if I get my audience for this guy, I'm going to ask these questions. Yeah, you know, uh, I have an enormous amount of respect for that guy because, you know, he's working in a world which is not like squeaky clean, you know? 
Um, actually, you know, in fairness to him, we say he'd sold off the best players, but he'd also, you know, he bought Adrian Mutu, let's remember. Uh, we had Camoranesi, uh, we had Oddo, uh, we, had, we had a lot of extremely good players. Uh, and, and this guy was, was just super, super good at scouting. I mean, it was him who went out to Mexico and saw Camoranesi playing and brought him back to Italy and then sold him to Inter later. You know, but a lot of the players who he had brought in as young starlets, as it were, you know, were only there to leave. You know, it was like we've been brought to Verona so that so that we can be seen by Juventus and Inter and, and, and in Milan and stuff. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I had a lot of respect for him and, and the way the way he dealt with all that. But, yeah, you, you know, if you're going to talk to a guy like that, you have to throw a few hard questions at him. And he knew that I was going to do that. You know, he's used to that stuff. So it, it was it was all fine. And his answers, you know, he knows perfectly well that he's not going to tell me all the truth. And I know perfectly well that he's not going to tell me all the truth. I'm not going to go some kind of BBC Today program. Oh, but you've got to really tell me the truth. I wanted his personality to come out. And, and I think he was a very sharp, I think he was a very sharp guy. And in the end... You know, we did see we did see some good football, and uh, I think five or six of the players in that team would be in the Italian national team over the next few years. So that 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 was quite a good team. We had we had Gilardino, who we just just bought, who was like seventeen or eighteen at the time, uh, and would would go on to be a, a sort of bit of a superstar and so on. So it, it was an interesting group of guys. Yeah, I think that's kind of why the official access that you get the adds a nice flavour to the book because I think when Pastorello responds in the way he does, he he, he actually makes quite a convincing case and 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 but I think what it shows is it shows the gap between the, the fans' understanding of what goes on and sometimes the 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 dynamics of of what actually goes on behind the scenes and I think give it having that bit of official access just shows the chasm that exists. I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. I, I don't know how big that chasm is in Italy. Like, the guys in the Curva were pretty canny guys about about what was going on, you know? The thing that really irritated them was when they saw a player who wasn't really trying, okay? So, you know, we would go to... We would go to watch training sessions. They would hit on a player and they would challenge players as they came out of the training session and say, you know, what were you doing on Saturday night before the game? You know, <laughs> why did we see you out at two o'clock in the morning and stuff like that? So they were actually sort of playing policemen in probably a way that the club should have been should have been playing it. But let me say about this and about sports writing in general. One of the things that really doesn't help is that whole kind of pious side of sports writing, like we're going to we're going to point the finger, we're going to you know, um, uh, creating this this kind of feeling of polarity that there's there's clean guys and bad guys and and so on and so forth, and not not really uh, giving you a sense of, of of how this world operates. And yeah, there there is stuff going on that definitely should not be going on, but but it's it's rarely uh, the work of a single individual and very largely to do with how a whole culture is operating around around these circumstances 
And you can go and scream, oh, this is all, you know, this is all hateful and so on and so forth. But, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere saying, saying that kind of thing, frankly. Uh, it's, it's, just a, it's just virtue signaling most of it at the end of the day. I want to talk to you a little bit about the writing experience because I think one of the most interesting things is you, your background as a kind of celebrated and prolific writer of fiction and non-fiction and this this book must have been a very different kind of creative experience for you not so much a, a, an exercise of maybe of the imagination but but was it more a kind of almost reportage you were just turning up and experiencing things and writing them down can you take take us inside the the kind of creative process of this book it's a hugely different experience from say writing a novel or or writing a history book or something like that and and you know uh, use the word prolific which always gets used in my regards and sometimes disparagingly I'm afraid but uh, but what I really love is is taking on a project that just turns out to be completely different from other projects that I've done. Like I'm, I'm doing something like that now. Well, I won't take our time to describe it, but something that, that really moves me in, into something new. Creativity. You know, what is creativity? To a large extent, it's, it's how to organise your material to keep it exciting and to keep bringing in new perspectives. So... You know, yes, there was an element of reportage, but I wanted constantly to bring in elements from history about, you know, about the history of Italy and the history of Italian regions and um, Italian football. You know, there's, there's one there's one chapter where I run a game with, I think it was it was Verona Juventus. I run that game against a poem written by Giacomo Leopardi in 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 the eighteen eighteen thirties. Uh, where, where he talks about about sport and football in particular as as the only form of heroism you know left to us. So yeah, I was trying I was trying to bring I was trying to bring in some politics as well, uh, and and the whole problem and and the chat lines of the of the fans because chat lines were new then. So uh, this was a whole new experience. This business of having a space where fans could get on and slag each other off and stuff. And so a lot of material was coming out that looked pretty new at the time. Uh, it, it was a huge organisational thing. And the problem was you didn't, you know, when you're writing a novel, you sort of have a feeling of, of where this narrative is going and what is the feel of this book. But when you've got a, a football season, like you don't know if this is going to end up in abject disaster. You know, when we're about two-thirds of the way through this season, I thought... Heavens, this book is going to be a real downer for the reader. You know, we keep losing these games, man. I was just thinking, you know, it's going to be so depressing if we've already been relegated like five games before the end. Like, what am I going to be doing? You know, and and I was one lucky guy because, of course, you know, the the last three games they they just turned things out and then managed to get into the playoffs and so on and so forth, and then. And then the playoffs themselves get resolved five minutes from the end with a with a spectacular goal. So I was I was a lucky I was a lucky guy. But yeah, the writing experience, and this is how I like the writing experience today, is me sitting down thinking, well, there's an awful lot of material here, and I can't really take more than twenty pages to to express it in. So, what's going to be in? What's not going to be in? How are we going to arrange it? You know, what we're going to do? It was it, it was fun to do that, you know. Did the 
the book have its seeds in a, in a newspaper column. I, I think I read and I reviewed it. The Guardian uh, ran some some pieces from yourself around this subject. Is is that true? Did that is that where where, where it came from? No, the the book didn't start in a column, and and none of my books have ever started in in columns. The book the book started in just me thinking what, what this would be a lot of fun to write about Italy through through football, as it were, and to write about to write about this mental thing through football. But I was about 10 weeks into it, and, I, you know, I was, I was spending an awful lot of money. On, and I was thinking there could be some nice way of getting a spin-off deal with this. So I wrote to The Guardian and said, look, why don't, why don't I offer you 10 columns? And I'll try and give you a sort of lively sense of the point of view from the curva without doing all the normal stuff of, oh, my God, how awful it is that these guys insult each other. And, you know, and, and they went for it. You know, I, I must say I was I was surprised. And uh, I think we did 10 articles. And then famously, after the book was finished, I agreed to do an article about Kivo, which which got me into all kinds of trouble, I must say. <laughs> but, but that's another story. So, no, the, the articles were, were a kind of way of... Um, of making the book pay a bit more. And I also did a big article for the New York Review of Books about local football and international football in the World Cup, which was running, you know, the whole Verona experience against Italy's experience in, 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 in the World Cup and just, just saying, you know, these are just two completely different areas of, uh, of experience. So... I, I, you know, like like any writer or anybody, anyway, you, you're always trying to sell the same thing twice if you can. You know, so that's what I was doing. <laughs> it's funny you, you were touching on the, the ending there, and I, I think sometimes the endings of books can feel forced. You can you can sense the writer trying to wriggle out of the of the narrative. But I, I just I just reread uh, the ending to a season with Verona this morning and. We were just talking about it before we started recording. It is just the most incredible ending to to a book. I mean, just like from from the point of view, if you are six or seven weeks from the end of the season and you think, well, we could, you know, we could be relegated with you know these games to go, and then there's not there's nothing there. It couldn't have gone any differently to your apprehensions at that point because you have this incredible joint fourth bottom finish which puts you into a playoff with Regina and then this and then in the Regina playoff in the second leg uh, down in Calabria there's this late comeback uh, Verona survive and then all, all hell breaks loose C- can you give us a little flavour of that day and how it, it provided this kind of epic ending to the book yeah well Regina remember is uh, Reggio Calabria so we're talking right down on the, the tip of Italy's boot there's this general kind of pious feeling in Italy that, you know, the teams in the south don't have enough representation in the top league, whereas the, the teams in the north have maybe too much. And, you know, Verona have racist fans, so they, they really should go down, you know. So you got the feeling that the whole football establishment uh, wanted Verona to go down. Verona won 1-0 on the first leg and, and then we went down south. It's really a long way um, and I had duties at the university so I couldn't go down with the fans who went down on a couple of buses, you know, and it was another all-night trip. I mean, even, I mean, really, it's like a, it was like a 16-hour drive or something. I went down a plane with the players 
um, the players had had fans outside the hotel all night bothering them. I mean, just banging dustbins and st- stuff like that, you know, bells, noise. And I remember saying to the direttore sportivo, you know, a, a guy called Foskey, I said to him, you know, why on earth didn't you put the team in some quiet hotel out of town? And he looks at me as if I, as if I really don't know anything, which is probably perfectly true. He says, look... These kids are these kids are between eighteen and twenty four years old. Most of them, uh, they're going to miss a night's sleep. It's true, but they're going to be so angry when they get out on the pitch, you know. Uh, so the pitch, well, you know, the the game they were winning two nil. There was about ten minutes left. I wasn't I wasn't able to get in with our group of fans because of all the all the restrictions. They were there were only about one hundred and fifty people there shouting and screaming and insulting and swearing the whole time. And I was up with the press, who were all, pretty well, all pro-Regina. And, uh, and it, was, it was like 10 minutes from the end. They had lined the pitch with so-called stewards. All of a sudden, this team, this minor team, seemed to have about 500 stewards who were lining the pitch... And as the players later told me, they were just constantly saying, if you dare even get anywhere near scoring, we're going to kill you, right? So, so the players were playing surrounded by these, these guys, and the whole area around the Regina goal had been covered with plastic bottles thrown from the, their fans behind. So, you know, it was, I just thought, okay, so it's game over, you know. It, well, at least it went to the wire, you know. And... Uh, and and then you get one of those just crazy goals. Our, our our goalkeeper collects the ball from from one of their attacks and kicks it way upfield. Uh, it, it bounces high, and and this centre forward Michele Cosato, he, he he just takes it on the bounce with his head and heads it over the goalkeeper as as he's coming out of the out of the goal. And and there you are, we, you know, amazingly we've scored. And and really, all hell was let loose. The, the the head of the club immediately tried to get out of the ground. There were like five minutes left, and got kicked uh, kicked to the floor in the tunnel. The players themselves, uh, when they got off the pitch, were all kicked and attacked, and there was quite a lot of violence going on in the tunnel. I myself had to sort of sneak off. You know, I was very careful not to celebrate when we scored. Uh, the players themselves locked themselves in the in the dressing room, refused to come out until they were convinced that they had the police right outside. So they were in there for more than an hour. I got to, I, I got to the bus uh, where I found the photographer from the local paper, the local Verona paper, who I knew... Uh, and he was crying because he'd, he'd, he'd taken a few blows and his camera had been banged against the wall. He didn't know whether it was working or not. That was a very funny exchange with the bus driver because this guy was really upset, you know, and the bus driver says to him, bus driver was local Calabria guy, he says, you know, well, you know, it's pretty bad, but I tell you something, my wife's depressed and, and I can tell you that's worse than, than, get, than getting a couple of knocks, you know. <laughs> it was, you know, I, I kind of thought, yeah, having your wife depressed, like clinically depressed, that, that is actually worse than getting a couple of knocks. So it was, it was an interesting experience. And while we were driving away, everybody was really worried that the bus was going to be ambushed and that there was going to be serious trouble. So, but, but it wasn't, and we got away to the airport and uh, 
At the airport, one of the players says to me, you know, Tim, about the trainer, Perotti, the coach, because I'd, I'd been asking him some questions, said, you know, we never thought he was any good. We never obeyed him at all. <laughs> You know, I said, well, maybe that's why we lost so many games. You know, it was it was very it was very funny. I mean, there was a lot there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of life going on. You know, it was interesting. But but from a, from a writer's point of view, that must just have been a gift. I was so lucky. You know, I just thought I don't I don't really need to say anything at all. I just I just talk about this and and that's it. Closing. You know, it's always best to be like when you've got a narrative going. Uh, when you get near the end of the book, it, it's best just to let the narrative go, let the narrative move on, and, and make as little comment as you as, as you can at the end. Because the, by that point, the reader just wants to know, you know, what what happened. I, I just want to finish up by talking about the reaction to the book. I mean, did the book find the audience that you hoped it, hoped it did? Was it was it kindly reviewed? How, how was the whole experience of letting the book out into the world? Well, you know, uh, no book of mine has ever found the reaction that I wanted it to have, which would be like an immediate Nobel Prize and so on and so forth. But well, you know, yeah, there were some great reviews for the book. There were there were some snotty reviews. Uh, there were, you know, I remember, I remember one review. I think it was the Times or something saying Park seems to have a strange attraction to unsavoury characters. You know, so, uh, you know, you just think, I don't know where these guys been all their lives. You know, um, it was it was on the short list for uh, the big sports prize. It's a William Hill Sports Prize. It sold it sold pretty well, and it's it's still selling on and and gets royalties. And above all, I get you know uh, mails mails from people who who like it. I get mails from fans of teams who hate Verona who said, you know, I never thought I'd read a book about Verona fans, but this is a great book. Or 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 books from people who thought I didn't even realize this book was about football. I hate football, but I love the book. You know, so so that was good. The the Bishop of Verona invited the citizens of Verona to burn the book because I'd put all the blasphemies in it. So that was obviously good for sales. You know, I, I was very, very pleased about that, about the, the bishop wanting to burn the book. I wish they'd, they, I wish they'd done it, you know, because it, it would have been a happy memory. So, yeah, I, I think the book, the really interesting thing was, you know, on the court of art, I would go to games. I mean, in a way, it was a bit of a drag because I, I completely lost my anonymity at the stadium. But, you know, there would be loads of kids coming up to me saying, you know, I, I've never read a book before, but I really enjoyed this. So, there was one funny one. I had, I had put in a quotation in the book that said, you know, people who experience of, uh, extremes of, of joy will also experience extremes of de- despair, and both of them are the result of a false vision of life, you know. And I remember this young fan, he's like 15 years old, he comes up to me and says, I was reading your book, you know, there was that, there was that, that, that guy you quoted who said, who said that stuff about despairing about joy you know that that's just what i'm like he said who was that guy and i said well you know that was that was arthur schopenhauer <laughs> you know i said, <laughs> I said oh, yeah yeah i've never never heard of him <laughs> it, it, it was it was fun the way the book was received but but then there was the problem of like you've written a book about football so now you have to give your opinion about every football game and you get 
constant telephone calls from Gazzetta dello Sport or, you know, Sky Sports and will you comment on this, you know, this this England game or something. You just think, no, you know, this is not this is not what it was about. It wasn't about me becoming a football pundit. It was it was it was different. And so I kind of withdrew as a as a result. I, like, I made a definite decision at one point that I would do something like three or four years without talking about football at all. Does the passion still burn 20 years on? I mean, do you still go to the stadium and watch games? I moved about 10 years ago away from Verona. Um, and I live in Milan now. And I'd already got, I must say, I got into a situation where first it was a problem because everybody knew you at the stadium and bothered you. So you couldn't stand up and shout anymore. Like, because now you've got people with cameras in the stadium everywhere. You know, you stood up and start swearing or something. You're going to get a photo taken of you. You know, I was a bit disenamored of all, of all that. I hate that. You know, I mean, the, the stadium should be a place where you can go and let your hair down. I don't have any hair, but... So I'd, I'd withdrawn to a degree. I wasn't going to so many games. Then I came to Milan. So now I go back occasionally and watch a game. But I must say, I go back pretty incognito and I don't sit in the court. The court of it is always all season ticket anyway. So you can't just buy a, a ticket to get in the court. But, and I maybe go with a friend I have who's in the press box or just go in the terraces or something. Maybe. So I, 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 I'm obviously all glued into uh, the results. I sometimes pick up a game on TV, but I'm not a big TV football person. I, I, you know, uh, the game's not about TV for me. Obviously, I'll watch a big game if I care about it on TV, but I'm not an obsessive TV watcher. No. Thank you to Tim for granting this rare interview. Please stop what you're doing and give us a review wherever you've listened to this podcast. And if you want to check out our documentary on the miracle of Castel de Sangro, it's just a couple of episodes back on this very feed. While you're there, check out the entire archive with loads of episodes from the world's leading sports writers. Finally, I'm going to end with a couple of podcast recommendations, one sport and the other non-sport. Firstly, check out Bombasso, the Scandinavian La Liga podcast, which is presented by Lee Rodden and Alexandra Johnson. Lee and Alexandra both used to cover La Liga and are now based in Sweden, where they provide expert analysis of Spanish football and heavily feature Scandinavian footballers playing in Spain, including Martin Odegaard. Non-sport, check out the Catch and Kill podcast with Ronan Farrow, which is the story behind the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist's two-year investigation into Harvey Weinstein. That's all for this episode. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.